What's up, everybody? This is Grant, that calls artist. Welcome to another episode of the Investing in Impact podcast. Today, we're going to speak with Eric Walston, partner at New Ventures Group, Mexico's leading social impact accelerator platform. He is also the co-founder of Adobe Capital, Mexico's first triple bottom line impact investment fund. And we speak in, in length about his impact investing journey and the opportunities for social entrepreneurs in Mexico and across Latin America. We also discuss some of the portfolio companies within Adobe Capital to understand what areas in the region have the most opportunity and have been impacted the most by their fund's uh, strategic capital allocation. Uh, he speaks passionately about housing, education, and healthcare within the region and his support for impact-driven entrepreneurs uh, who are able to create these innovative and profitable companies. It's just a really, really good conversation about another part of the world. I'm always interested in, in discovering what's going on within social impact, within impact investing, in other areas outside America, because uh, I think there's much more innovative things actually going on within the space and in other parts of the world. So it's really good to get a glimpse on what it's like, you know, on the ground there in these regions and, and what kind of companies are being created and, and what problems are being solved through through these businesses and through these innovative approaches. I hope you guys enjoy the conversation. As always, grant at causeartist.com if you have any questions or suggestions. Hope everyone is staying safe and staying healthy and I'll talk to you next time. Thanks. Usually how I like to start these conversations, just a little bit about the individual's journey on, on sort of how they get to, you know, what they're doing at the moment. And most people I talk to are, are doing something, you know, pretty big and will definitely take up a lot of their, their sort of life's work, so to speak. So can you just give us a little bit of background of, of what led you to sort of co-found Adobe Capital? Sure. So, you know, I was on the typical finance track, did my MBA at the University of Chicago, then went and did investment banking, and then ended up doing private equity for a number of years. And kind of, you know, that that well-worn path was pretty clear in front of me. Right. And I think what, what threw a wrench into the works uh, was when my first daughter was born. Mm. And so this was in 2008. And as she was born, I started thinking about what type of world uh, we're going to inherit uh, our children and also believe in, in really teaching through example. Right. So mm -hmm. could I could I tell you know, my children to you know, take care of the world and take care of others? But I was you know, investing in very exploitative right. um, traditional companies didn't make a lot of sense. Right. So I, I was I was looking for more impact before impact was was a word. Uh, but I think it was more meaningful contribution back to to my you know, home planet and initially looked at more going like full impact and looked at you know roles at, at World Wildlife Fund and Greenpeace and things like that mm -hmm. but really you know found that my MBA experience my what, what I knew about finance uh, was not what was needed there you know I wasn't going to be the most intimidating guy in you know a little rubber boat in the North Atlantic <laughs> in front of a whaling ship right I think there's there's bigger and meaner people out there who could probably play that role and so so that that was kind of not in the cards but I stumbled upon impact investing which was just starting mm -hmm. and I said this is something I like because it's something that marries what I know and what I know how to do very well plus my interests so I basically quit my job spent two years fundraising uh, for the first triple bottom line impact investment fund in Mexico hmm. and that's how we got started with Adobe Capital and that was 2010 exactly 10 years ago um, and it's been a hell of a ride <laughs> 
why Latin America specifically? Was it just you've been there or you saw some inspiring, you know, founders come out of that area or, or your partner that, that that's sort of in it with you? Did, did he recommend focusing on Latin America specifically? No. So I, I'm born and raised Mexican. Okay. Um, I, I like to say I'm an undercover Mexican because no one <laughs> believes me. And, and that's where I grew up. I mean, gotcha. uh, my parents are Swedish, but I was born in, in Mexico. So that was kind of home, home court where I'd done private equity. It's what I knew best. And um, my partner is also Mexican. So I do believe in, in, in being a local investor. And, and that's why we focus there. Fund two, fast forwarding a bit, is now uh, regional. So mm -hmm. we are investing throughout Latin America and have done our first deal in Colombia and really branching out. What's the sort of landscape in Latin America right now? And I mean, 2010 to now, I mean, obviously a decade in dealing with sort of technology and, and venture is like a hundred years, right? I mean, it moves so rapidly. What has sort of been the transition you've seen from 2010 to 2020 in that region? Yeah, so on the, on the impact space, particularly because that's what I focus on, uh, the growth has been very big. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's been big in Brazil and Mexico more particularly, but it, it has started in other other regions. And so I think like the, the impact movement really started in the UK and Europe. Um, then it came over to the US. But after that, um, I'd say it's it's even more advanced in Africa or mm. Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. um, and that's part of you know the work that we've been done building the ecosystem through the Latin American Impact Investment Forum, which we run every year, um, and just gathering people to you know think about and talk about these types of issues. And and so the growth has been tremendous. And and the other thing is you know there, there's just a, a lot a lack of public services. So education, healthcare, housing, recycling, mm -hmm. um, you know, renewables, uh, you know, waste management, there's just right. such a big opportunity, because the governments have have really never invested in these types of sectors and out of pocket is huge, right? So in difference to the US, uh, there's there's tremendous opportunities for, for these types of investments. And it really has to do with the fact that, you know, when, when there is a big out of pocket expense for basic services, you know, these investments can be very, very lucrative. So we don't, we don't see it so much as, as, as a niche, you know, more philanthropic opportunities. We believe these are kind of the sectors of the future and, and they're, they, they should be as profitable as traditional investments just because they're these huge untapped sectors. Right. Can you give us a little bit of example of maybe some of the companies within the portfolio and what companies you've traditionally invested in that are that are coming out of like Latin America? Yeah, sure. So, so I'll tell you a couple. Uh, one of, of the companies which we already invested in and exited is Provive. Mm -hmm. And Provive is basically uh, focused on recovering abandoned low-income housing in uh, in smaller U.S. cities uh, across not so, so smaller Mexican cities across the U.S. border. Mm. Uh, so be it Tijuana, Ciudad Juarez, um, Mexicali, and so there there's a lot of abandoned houses, and they go and buy them, and then together with a foundation, they really rebuild the social tissue, right? They build, rebuild the community, so mm. that. You know, they, they, they fix up the parks and they paint the walls and they lobby, you know, municipal authorities. So there's, you know, better lighting and more, more security. And then, you know, these houses, which they might buy for 50 cents on the dollar, then 
you know, suddenly they're going to be worth 80 and, you know, 80 sure. cents on the dollar. And then they've got a margin there. But what's, what's really interesting is, you know, they might come in and buy five, three, four, 500 houses in, in a certain housing block. But these benefits derive to them, but they all did also derive to everyone else who owns a house in those mm, neighborhoods. Yeah, yeah. So it builds, um, you know, capacity there and, and it just helps to increase uh, household, household wealth, right? So um, that's something that, that is very profitable, but it also has a huge impact uh, component. Another another company we invested in in Mexico is called Salauno. Salauno uh, runs the, the largest uh, network of low-cost eye clinics and hospitals in mm. the country. You know, they're doing in excess of about 15,000 eye surgeries a year. And, you know, this is just because there's a lot of people who have unnecessary blindness for, you know, cataracts or other right. types of eye diseases. And usually, you know, it, it's, it's prohibitively expensive for them to operate themselves. And if they go into the public um, hospitals, you know, it might take, you know, wait time of, of sure. a year yeah. or two. Yeah. So, so there they, they, they've basically used a very streamlined business model to drive down costs, which make it um, very profitable for them, a high volume model but then also makes it so much more accessible to so many people who, who have a relative who is, is legally blind. Um, and so is, is kind of someone the family has to take care of. And then after the operation, they can, you know, contribute again to family life and help, um, you know, change a bit of those dynamics. Is working with the local municipalities or, or local government, is that something that they're willing to do there? It's not as much as that, like, they don't want to do these things, right? They just don't have the capacity. But, you know, if a private partner comes in and are willing to sort of, you know, solve these these kind of issues, you know, from, from a venture point of view, have they been very responsive in sort of helping out with you need, like with certain requests or just kind of, you know, making it easy for you to come in and create these sort of impactful businesses. Um, I mean, it's, it's just always good to have sort of government backing that makes things easier rather than difficult, I would imagine. Yeah, so that's that's a tricky, a, tr a tricky proposition. And so we try and really operate in the 100% uh, like private sector. Sure, sure. Um, and not depend on any government subsidies or programs. And the reason is, you know, municipal governments uh, tend to last three years, mm. um, you know, state government six. So, you know, kind of a couple of years in, suddenly there's a new, uh, right. you know, head of the municipality and he <laughs> wants to change the rules of the game, right? So it, it doesn't mesh with, you know, the long-term uh, types of investments that you have to do as a social enterprise. So we kind of stay clear of that and we try and, you know, do a part of it has to be government related, um, but we try and minimize it as much as possible and, and really just go directly to the clients and, and have a, a compelling you know, value proposition at an attractive price. What's, what's interesting about the two um, portfolio companies you discussed a little bit was that they're both non-technical in a lot of ways, right? They're sort of traditional sort of like, here's a problem in society, let's kind of you know, solve it and we don't need you know, a web app or mobile app or like really elaborate uh, Wi-Fi, right? Is, are there a lot of like technical companies that are coming out um, of Mexico and Latin America that you see? Or is it, or do you guys focus traditionally on like these non-technical companies um, just because that's your forte? So I, I think, you know, we, we, we tend to favor bricks and mortar mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. type of solutions because that's really what's needed. I right. think, 
you know, I, I think the U.S. in particularly is, is a bit enamored with mm -hmm. everything tech. Yep. Um, and quite honestly, tech has its limits. It's, it's not going to save the world. And, and a, lot of, a lot of the problems we are seeing today are actually created by yeah. tech. Um, <laughs> and so, so when you have a country like most of Latin America where, you know, just, just the overall provision of the basics like drinking water, right. healthcare delivery, education, housing, you know, waste management, recycling, when that's, you know, it hasn't been actually ever, you know, pretty well addressed. Right. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, you know, the, the, the statistics are huge, right? There's like 7 million homes that need to be built in the country, right? Wow. And an app's not going to do that. Um, you have about 350,000 students just in Mexico who would like to go to college but can't because they don't have the financing, right? Because there's, there's no you know, student loans. So we mm. were actually investors in, in the largest student lender down there. Interesting. And so, so these are all things that, you know, an app can help. And we do embrace technology in a way of, you know, reaching out to students, uh, collecting, sending them their invoices, yeah. you know, chat boxes when they have questions. But you, you need to go and find the students and, you know, finance them and, and collect. And, and that's still going to be done by people. And, and the surgeries that Salauno makes are not going to be made by robots. Right. And <laughs> the houses that Provive is refurbishing, they're going to be done by people, by painters and, you know, masons and, you know, plumbers. They're, they're not going to be uh, an app. So I think, I think that's why we have, have tried to go more, more for the bricks and mortar types of approach because impact is, is really foremost in our in our investment thesis whereas there are other people who there there are i think enhancements yep. uh that that tech can bring but i don't think it's the magic bullet it can assist in the overall goal of of what's trying to be accomplished yep. it, can, it can be an assistant to it um the one thing i like what you said is you know clean water right and sort of waste management these sort of foundational things. I guess the issue I think with investing traditionally is that it's like, I guess people would look at it and be like, how would you make money from that? Right? I think has been it has been the why the reluctancy to sort of solve these problems, right in developing countries or, you know, just countries around the world that need this, these simple foundational things, right? Like, you, I guess capital doesn't want to do it because they can't get returns from it. Or is it just like, how would you make money off of like one, like, the examples you said, like clean water initiatives, right? Or waste management, like what's the business models there in Latin America? Yeah. So I think, you know, I think it comes from maybe a U.S. mindset, in which, yep. you know, in most of the U.S., you, you, you know, you, you turn the tap and water comes out. I yep. mean, it's kind of like a basic service and, you know, other, you know, there's been some places like Flint, Michigan and others right. where, you know, the water's terrible, but it's kind of the exception. Right. Um, in Latin America, a large part of the population, um, you know, sometimes up to even half, do not have um, access to any type of running water. Hmm. So they are already paying for water. And usually in, in very impoverished slums on the outskirts of cities, you know, a big, you know, tanker truck uh, with water will come by, you know, once a week and, you know, fill up, you know, these big containers and people pay for that. Right. Mm. So, so that's, 
they're already paying for it. So if you can do it in a more efficient way um, at lower cost and things like that, or capturing rainwater and storing it, you know, those types of solutions, um, they're is a willing market. I think it's just the fact that you'd, you'd never think of in a, in a developed country that you'd have to pay for just running water. So, right. so that's, that's the context. Um, it's hard because it's very small tickets. It's, it's hard to collect. You know, then if there was one company we looked at, what, what they did was with, with a new, very low-income housing developments, they put in all the network of drinking water. And, you know, you'd pay by the day or the week or the month um, at a very low cost. And you know, if you didn't pay, they'd have a system, you know, where they could shut off the water. But, you know, people are clever. And instead of figuring out how to pay what they owe you, they kind of figure out how to hack the system and get the water for free, right? And so, you know, that was that was not an investment we made because we found out that, you know, 80% of their systems already been hacked and now so they were just giving away water. So it's hard. I'm not saying it's easy, but it, it's something that there is a huge market and you're talking millions of people. So if you can tap and solve that, it's a very interesting proposition. So you're saying the citizens do currently pay for water. It's just not good water or some areas. Well, well, you'd, you'd want running water and not something that arrives in a truck. Maybe of course. Twice yeah, absolutely. A week or absolutely. once a week. Right. right. Um, and then the quality is, is usually very bad. I want to go back to one thing you said a little bit earlier about being the one of the largest the student loan initiators. In, is that in Mexico or in the region? Or? That, that's in Mexico. And is that traditional sort of just loans and just at a low interest rate or like a normal interest rate? Like how does, are you, is it just traditional sort of where you guys have a pool of money and then you're just allocating it at, at an interest rate or is, or is there, I've kind of, I know this, the income shared agreement has kind of blown up a lot lately here in the United States for students to kind of try to afford um, higher education. Is that something that, is popping up like globally that you see, or is it just tr the traditional sort of educational loan model? Yeah, no. So that that income sharing model um, was also in Mexico and a couple of other Latin American countries, and that didn't work. Um, and there was this whole idea that you know you, you were you're gonna you know lend someone money so they could go to college, mm -hmm. and then you know when they graduate they were gonna give ten percent of their income. Yep. Um, and unfortunately, people would fudge the numbers, mm. um, say they had less. You know, it wasn't like a fair proposition. And then it was very hard for those um, financial institutions to figure out how much they were going to get paid back every month. Right. right. Um, well, now, you know, I got paid less um, because I got laid off and now I'm not going to pay you. But then I've got this other job. And so that that model never panned out. What 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 this company we invested in called Finai is um, they, they really innovated because the most of the the parents of students so so most students 90% of the families have have never been banked before right and they're usually 75% of these these students are the first person in their family to go to college so you know what what they had to do was really innovate because a lot of the the parents who are paying off the student loan uh, work in an informal economy, right? They they might you know have a a street a street market a stall, or they might be in agriculture, 
And so they, you know, there's some months which are good and some months which are bad. And if you're in agriculture, you make a lot of money on harvest, but then very little the rest of the year. You know, it, it's hard for them to to figure out how much they're going to pay over time. And, and their financial savviness is very low. So this whole, you know, you're going to pay me, you know, X percent you know, over the, over the balance, it, it's not something they understood. So what, what these people figured out at FINAI was they kind of bundle it all up and say, it's like a fixed payment plan. They mm-hmm. say, okay, mm-hmm. you're, you're going to get a loan and you're going to pay me 3000 pesos a month over the next 10 years. And that's fixed. And then that people would, would actually look at it and say, okay, I can, I can do that. You can understand like, that. Um, right. Because this whole amortization schedules in which yeah. at the beginning you're paying adjustable off rates little, and, more, yeah. and yeah it didn't yeah. work so they were very innovative there and they've you know they've done about twelve thousand student loans the largest uh, player in the country and it's it's been a very interesting experience because you're you're really bringing people into the banking world because mm-hmm. they've mm-hmm. never had a bank account they've never had a loan so there's a lot of education there as well is <laughs> i know we talked a little bit about tech earlier and it's sort of not being you know it's something that assists with things rather than being the entire sort of company has any companies come out of of latin america in like the mobile mobile payment space because that seems to be a very sort of growth sort of sector in places like africa have really sort of almost taken the lead on kind of just having a mobile payment ecosystem and kind of skipping almost the brick and mortar you know banking structure that you know the us has or or UK has or a lot of European countries. Is that something that you could see Latin America do with with sort of mobile payments and maybe mobile banking that Adobe Capital would ever get into? Yeah. So I think Mexico and Latin America in general are more like in the midpoint between like the US and Europe and mm-hmm. Africa, mm-hmm. right? I mean, mm-hmm. Mexico is part of the OECD. You know, it's it's I think it's a middle developed country. And so, so there is a banking sector and there are branches and there is a large penetration of credit cards and debit mm, cards and mm-hmm. stuff like that versus in places in Africa, it's just like, right. there's non-existent. I mean, there, there are no banks, there are no branches, there are no ATMs. And in most metropolitan areas of Latin America, there are ATMs and bank branches and things like that. I think they've come in, uh, there's been a big, a big wave of fintech companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think some of them are just accepting digital payments. So we've invested in one company in Colombia called uh, Punto Red. And they, they basically allow small uh, local corner shops like mom right. and pops accept digital payments. Mm-hmm. And they've got a network of about 72,000 establishments, right? And people show up and they need to pay for something and they more and more want to pay a credit card and they've only accepted cash. Right. And there's another, another um, one in Mexico called Clip. Um, and there's a bunch of people doing that. Then there's the transferring, you know, from one account to the other. Um, there's a lot of people doing those types of things. And then there's interesting, we, we accelerated one company out of Argentina called Affluenta. And Affluenta is basically a, a marketplace for like very small loans. Uh, mm-hmm. So peer to peer type of model. So, you know, you'll get in and you'll say, you know, I've got a thousand dollars and, you know, I'd like to lend it out at a good rate. Right. And it'll show you people who want to borrow a thousand dollars and they match that up. But but I'd say, you know, I, I think I think Latin America is more in the middle space there. So there's there's interesting things. We haven't really invested in any because in in most of them, it, it's kind of hard to figure out the the impact angle. And 
a lot of the lenders are just doing you know exorbitant rates sure um, yeah it's more predatory lending mm. and so it's a great business and there's you know the margins are huge um but from the impact side it's like it's well, pretty terrible yeah it's pretty yeah you, you're, you're going into people <laughs> who go, are yeah. desperate and have no idea what this is and they get a loan and they're super happy and then they can't pay for it um, yeah it's a so, vicious cycle so yeah so that's why we haven't done anything other than this investment in colombia that's almost promoting poverty rather than trying to solve it you know it's uh yeah and and what's sad is a lot of these players kind of sell themselves as mm, you know right access to finance right well, right no it's it's access to finance at an attractive and payable rate when right. And it just has to do with the market. My credit card in Mexico, and I'm like the best credit quality there is because I you know, never use money more than 30 days that you get on the credit card. So I never have an outstanding balance. I get, I have my has, my credit card has a 44% APR. Oh my God. And that's like the top. It goes up to 80s, 100s, 120s. So oh people who are lending people at, you know, payday loans at an APR of 100 plus, it's hard to see how anybody ever digs themselves out of their hole. So we, we try and avoid those. That's borderline criminal. I mean, it wouldn't pass in the U.S. I, I mean, I know there's there's laws against, I mean, now. <laughs> I mean, it, obviously, the, the crisis in 2008 sort of implemented some things. But yeah, I mean, that shouldn't even, I mean, that shouldn't be legal in any country, really. That bothers me a lot. <laughs> no, I agree. I agree. And, and, I, and I have no problem if, you know, if, if it's a bank and they just say, you know, we're a very profitable bank but it, it, it's it's harder when it's you know it's an upcoming startup and they're like you know touting financial inclusion mm -hmm, and access mm -hmm. to finance mm -hmm. and you know we're helping these people you know uh by giving them loans and and when you look at the numbers you're like no way whoever lands you know in your net is never getting out and that's 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 a lot of what we're seeing what are you seeing from i guess an innovation standpoint or an inspirational standpoint from you know, young founders, you know, maybe is there a lot of female founders that are getting into the sort of building companies in, in Mexico? Um, I know that sort of you know, traditionally hasn't been, really been funded in the US, you know, female founders are get a very, very small percentage of, of venture capital. Do, do you see more you know, women in Latin America getting into this space? Yeah, yeah. So we are, we are seeing more women, which is very encouraging. More from the younger generations, and right. you know those those go back from social uh, customs that you know are multi generational, right. which you know women were expected to stay at home and, and cook, and and so that's been a big change, and that's really encouraging to see, and we we try and promote that as much as we can. You know, we also see you know there there's a lot of there's a lot of copycat innovation hmm. and so it's like the amazon for latin america sure now yeah it's the uber for latin yeah, america of course. but like in more of our sectors like um a company that we we accelerated uh, a while ago out of argentina called uh, mammal test they do telemammographies so trying to reduce um, breast cancer rates in rural communities and there they've they've had to innovate right how do you get right you know, to do those types of screenings for breast cancer in a rural community. And they, you know, they kind of uh, work hard and, and, and they come up with these really interesting uh, uh, business models. Uh, another company that we invested in called Avita, um, they do rural housing, right? So mm -hmm. how, you know, there's some people, families who are living in houses made out of cardboard boxes or made out of wood or just uh, recovered materials. You know, how do you 
bring down public housing subsidies and, and help, help them save so they can have access to uh, a home. Um, so we see a lot of that, um, but more on the tech space, going back to that, you see a lot of copycats. And, and eventually it's part of their play, right? They, they think that one of these big ones is gonna look at the country and say, well, you know, here's a player that looks exactly like me, I'll buy them instead of starting from scratch. And sometimes sure. it works and sometimes it doesn't. Going back to, to the home building for a second, and especially sort of in, in rural areas where there's just, there's just absolutely no even foundational framework to even work with. Have you looked into like this, this sort of, you know, 3D printing home technology, an organization called New Story that's sort of building these neighborhoods in, in Haiti, sort of build these houses pretty rapidly? in like 24 hours. Um, and, and, you know, and from an investment standpoint, I don't know, I don't know the, the sort of metrics of, of cost, but I know there's, there's private companies coming out and, and sort of using 3D technology to sort of build these small sort of, you know, homes rather than somebody living, obviously in like a cardboard box or, or, or a tent or something like that. Is that something that you see sort of maybe popping up in Latin America anywhere at all? Yeah. So I think, you know, I th- think there's a difference between urban and rural, mm-hmm, which totally. you always have to kind of uh, keep in mind. So the, the typical low-income model is is someone going out, buying a large piece of land, and mm-hmm. buy, you know, building 300, 500, 5,000 houses. They all look the same. Right. Because there's economies of scale, right? It, sure. It's cheaper to buy a lot of land. Uh, it's cheaper if you buy, you know, a million bricks than if you buy a hundred, <laughs> you know, you can get a cement company to actually, you know, go and, and send you buses of, of, you know, cement trucks, you know, on a consistent basis, if, if your project's big enough. And so what we've always seen is, is in the rural side, there's the, the poverty tax in, mm. in the sense that they pay the most for any type of product, because if they buy eggs, you know, they, they don't buy a dozen or two dozens, they buy two or three. Mm. And if if they buy um, bricks, you know, they, they might buy a dozen or two dozen. But when you look at a per brick cost, that's huge. And cement and sand sure. and rebar, everything, right? So the big challenge with rural housing, which is probably, I'd say, two thirds of the need is is you have people who who own the land that they live on they're not squatters but you have to go and and build these houses in very remote locations and even when you are in a village you know there's one house down by the river there's another one at the top of the of the hill there's two over you know by the market and you know it, so you have to move that along so these these models that we've seen which are you know 3d printing or uh, recycled mm, um, plastic yeah. Yeah. and stuff like that. It, it's hard to do when you're not when you're not going to do a hundred contiguous houses. You gotcha. know, moving that printing, you know, three D printing machine, you know, every so often is is difficult and complicated. And then the final thing, which is interesting, is um, there's usually in in rural communities there's usually one or two like local home builders. And these mm. are guys in Mexico, they're called albañiles. It's the person who's kind of a plumber, kind of an electrician, right. kind of a Just mason. a all-in-one renaissance man. <laughs> and, and he's kind of the one who, who's kind of helped build most of the houses. He kind of knows how to make a house so it doesn't fall down. Right. And, you know, when these technologies come in, they sometimes feel threatened. Mm. And so... You know, they'll start saying, no, nah, that's never going to work. You know, there's going to be an earthquake's going to fall down. It's sure. know, the wind's going to blow. And, 
and they'll be the first ones who don't don't promote it. So the first you know lesson learned is you have to get that local champion, um, of course, yeah, to to be part of that. And yep. secondly, when they're more like plasticky. Uh, refugee types of houses, stuff right. like that. People don't want to live in that. Mm-hmm. If, if I'm living in a tent in a refugee camp, you know that that's a huge upgrade. But but no one want people want to live in the types of houses that are typical in that region. And so so interesting things. It's in places where it rains a lot. You want you know roofs that have uh, a basically a pitched roof so the water doesn't accumulate. Sure. But when it's if it's a coffee growing region, they don't want those types of roofs. They want flat roofs because that's where they dry their coffee. Hmm. And and so there's all of these things which 3D printing and these models don't factor in because they're all factored in on how do I make a standard house right. as cheap as possible. And what we found is standard house, the standard you know quote unquote house is different region by region and town by town and and people don't want to live in a standard house that's why when you go through any neighborhood they all look different yeah um you know if, if that's going to be their house which they're going to live in the rest of their life and they're going to pass over to their grandchildren they like it the way they like it so sure. there's limitations to that and and we've seen that firsthand and that's kind of the challenge so i want to talk a little bit about the future we kind of end on i usually try to end on a question about the future a little bit maybe look at the next next decade, so to speak, and, and maybe what is, what is it, what does success look like from, you know, Adobe Capital point of view, what are sort of the missions and, and sort of goals over the next decade that you hope to accomplish and impact measurements that you have? And again, success can be deemed in a lot of different ways. So how would you maybe define that over the next 10 years? What, what would you want to accomplish? Yeah, so I think, you know, I think we're halfway there in the sense that when we started this 10 years ago, you know, the idea was that impact investing would start becoming mainstream. And, that, mm. you know, there were a lot of funds doing that because 10 years ago when we started, you know, nine out of 10 conversations, I had to explain what impact investing was. Yeah. And, and then, you know, they'd ask me what I'd invest in. And, you know, we'd say healthcare, education, housing, renewables, organics, um, things that are good for either, you know, people or the planet. And, and we get a lot of like rolling the eyes and, hey, that's great, sure. but you're just going to give away somebody else's money. And I think 10 years in, we've kind of proven. Uh, so I think first we, we've kind of been able to disseminate, you know, more broadly in Latin America, what impact investing is. And most people now get what it is, yeah. although everyone has different uh, viewpoints. Yep. And second, I think people have understood that it's not philanthropy there. You know, it, mm-hmm. it can be if it's done well, you know, it can be a win win. And and that's great to see, right? It's great to see because uh, it could have it could have just been a couple of years and then would have faded. And but it, it's growing more and more. I think what where we see success in the next ten years is more and more of the traditional players embracing impact, but in a real meaningful way and a in a truly uh, profound way because. We need scale. I mean, the the size right. of the problems um, are not going to be done by small players such as ourselves, which start from scratch. It takes, you know, now we have fifty million dollars in AUM. You know, but it's taking us ten years, and it's a drop right. in the bucket for the need. And right. so the the big question we have is we're seeing a lot of the large players jumping on in, but 
they're they're basically doing greenwashing or impact washing and and you know they're not really doing it correctly because it's hard because yeah, it's, it it's easier to just go do another deal of you know in a big company that does you know buy one give one away free right that that usually can generates much more problems than it solves but it, but it's a good marketing gimmick right i i feel yep. better if i buy some glasses and somebody else got some glasses for free does it really solve a, a major social issue? Probably not, right? Is, is that person, if that person needs food or is sick, you know, a pair of new glasses is not what they need, right? There's limitations to that. And so we, we see, you know, success in the next 10 years is a real uh, embracing of impact investing in which it's, it's investing in companies that have an intention of solving a problem, uh, which is either social or environmental. And it's not just, you know, a marketing ploy or marketing sure. gimmick. It's measurable in the sense that they can actually go and say X, Y, and Z people benefited in these ways from this. And, and I'd add additionality that, that they're going out and trying to fund companies and or, you know, maybe it's women who otherwise would not get funded because mm. we see a lot of the players coming in and, and you know, they're, they're just doing the same deals that anybody else is doing. And they're doing, you know, uh, syndicated deals with another three funds or five funds. Well, if there's already five funds looking at it, you're not really helping anything, right? You need to go and find that company who no one else wants right. to fund. Right. And so, so that's where I think we're, we're cautiously optimistic. And it will depend on, you know, what these larger players coming in who are basically gobbling up 95% of the money out there actually do. And if it's, if it's meaningful and it's done the right way, it can be very powerful. And if not, we could get to the point where people are like, you know, what, what, what's this about? Because if, if you do it the wrong way, it, it, it could be even worse. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you taking the time, Eric. Fascinated about social enterprises and impact entrepreneurship and, and sort of from the founder angle, which I've been focusing on the last, you know, seven years is really covering um, the founders and the companies they're building. And, you know, recently had as impact investing continues to grow, I really wanted to, to really chat with the individuals on the other side of it, which is probably the, one of the, the most important side, right, is the capital allocation of funds into, you know, these founders and, and these ideas and these companies, because like you said, I mean, if we just fund, if everybody's funding the same company, you know, that doesn't help the other innovative company over here that, that just needs just one person to back them. So uh, it's fascinating talking to the individuals that are they're allocating, you know, this capital correctly, you know, in my estimate, you know, it, it's just a, it's a new dynamic that I think has the potential to really solve a lot of these problems that we're talking about, because for so long, the allocation of money just hasn't been appropriated correctly. And I think, if that starts to get done within the venture capital world, within the startup world, that focuses on looking at not just funding the the Facebook of Latin America, right, or the Instagram of Latin America, but some of these other these other ones that frankly don't need a lot of capital to start up with, right? And their impact is is pretty you know profound with just a little bit of capital. Where some of these other companies need so much money to scale to even become profitable, right? And sometimes they never even do become profitable. Um, yeah. So yeah, so it's just it's refreshing to talk to. Uh, a lot of people in on this side of the, the industry to to get their their insight and input on you know what the future looks like for impact investing and hopefully we can we can define it as it should be defined and we don't 
you don't have individuals coming in, slapping the label on it and causing more problems than, than they're solving. So appreciate you taking the time. Happy to have this conversation. And what's interesting is uh, because I've had this, this, this conversation in the past about, you know, it seems the, the, the perception is that if, you know, if you're, if you're a founder, you started a company, right? And that, that, that's what an entrepreneur is. What, what's interesting, I, you know, I started this from scratch with a blank piece of paper. <laughs> so, so I'm also an entrepreneur, but yeah. usually people, if you, if you raise a fund or an asset management company, it, it doesn't seem like mm. an entrepreneurship, but, but it is, I mean, it, Great it point. is something yeah. new, right? So it's just the way, the way we, you know, slice and dice and it makes sense. Um, but you know, we looked at, I looked at an opportunity similar to all of the entrepreneurs that we've backed and basically dedicated time and resources to, to solving and, and addressing that opportunity. And so this is how it looks and happy <laughs> to share the story. Yeah. Amazing. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking the time. Sure thing.